Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so glad you guys are joining us today. On today's episode, we are joined with Abigail Johnston, who's going to be helping moderate the panel today. We are joined with three panelists. We have Amanda, Jeannie, and Anne, all of whom are diagnosed with metastatic stage four breast cancer. They all have very unique experiences in how they found out about their cancer and give great advice on how they've had these tough conversations with their loved ones and how you have these conversations with your children. Our panelists have children and grandchildren at various ages, and so we're going to get a lot of great takeaways and information on how do you talk to someone when they're one in three versus 12 or 17? How do you tell your daughter that you have breast cancer when your daughter is pregnant and is expecting her own child? These are the realities of living with metastatic disease. We don't sugarcoat it. And we'd like to thank our friends at Citizens for making this podcast possible. If you're like me, we know how challenging it can be to find clinical trials. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot involved, and half the time we don't even get placed on one. We know how important clinical trials are, however, and we know how hard it is to find the right one. Your health information is the key to unlocking treatment options. That's why we're so happy to be partnering with our friends at Citizens. Citizens is a completely free online service that helps you gain access to all of your medical records and now can also help you explore your clinical trial options. Their matching service is powered by your medical records, not surveys like many other matching services, taking the burden off of you. Did you know Citizen screens you against all trials listed on clinicaltrials.gov? That's over 500 clinical trials. They are knowledgeable, friendly, and have access to the world's most sophisticated clinical trial matching platform. Curious to know what clinical trials you're eligible for? Join Citizens for free and find out. I'll link to them below in the show notes, but you can also visit them at citizens.com forward slash clinical trials. And that's citizens with two I's, C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N.com. I guess that makes it three I's. But anyways, who's counting? Welcome to the conversation. I have to say I am so grateful to everybody who's going to participate tonight, um, but especially Laura, because um, I have brainstorms and I sent her a list of things and she says, yes, let's figure this out. And so I really appreciate that. Um, She also made a comment a little while ago that to be friends with me means that you're going to be um, asked to do things that might be slightly uncomfortable. So anybody who gets to know me knows that uh, (laughs) I I do. I call on people to talk about the things that they know about. And that's why uh, this panel tonight, and I'm so excited about bringing you the stories from each of the women who are going to talk to you tonight, because they're talking from their experiences, from their own personal experiences. And let me just back up and talk about MBC Grieving Together. Uh, So Allison Tischler, um, gosh, a couple of months ago, commented on a post of mine where I was talking about grief. And she gave me a label for the grief that I was feeling for those that we lose in the MBC community. And her label was disenfranchised grief. Mm. And that concept is for those types of grief that are not mainstream, quote unquote. Um, So the grief that doesn't follow the pattern that our culture expects, which is 
uh, you get past the funeral and then you stop talking about it because it makes people uncomfortable. And that's my own personal evaluation of how our culture views grief. I'm sure that everybody has their own personal experiences with it, but I was really struggling because I was grieving for people, some of which I'd never even met in person. And giving a label to it really, really, really helped me because I didn't feel abnormal. I didn't feel like I was doing something or experiencing something that wasn't real. And so the whole webinar series that I pitched to Laura and she said, yes, thank God, because I couldn't do all of the uh, uh, technology stuff behind the scenes. We're going to be talking about those things that aren't discussed mainstream in the mainstream culture. Uh, you probably won't be able to talk about these things at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Uh, there's going to be family members who are going to be uncomfortable with the things that we're talking about. There's going to be friends that are uncomfortable with it. And in my view, that means we end up not talking about them. And I don't think that that's a good, healthy way to deal with what we are all dealing with. People, whether you're in the United States or elsewhere, everybody is going to deal with grief eventually. Um, you're going to lose a pet. You're going to lose a parent. You're going to lose a friend whoever it is that you're grieving for. And so while we, those of us who are living with metastatic breast cancer, um, who are living with something that is terminal, um, and honestly, I would throw a lot of the people who are early stage in that too, because when you have to face your mortality, when there's this serious diagnosis, you just look at things differently. And so that's how this came about. Um, NBC Grieving Together is now a Facebook page. Um, we also have a website. And so if any of the discussions today um, spark something in you and you would like to write about that, we have a blog. We'd love to have people write about their personal experiences with grief. If you have questions that you would like answered in future webinars, please provide that information. We are learning and growing together. But I wanted to start our series with the process of getting ourselves ready for our eventual death, as well as our families, those closest to us. So I wanted to start with what's what's closest to us, and then we're gonna we're gonna work outwards. Is is how I've looked at at this series. And so, what I want you to be thinking about today as we tackle anticipatory grief. Um, anticipatory grief is the grieving process that begins prior to a loss, and people who are experiencing anticipatory grief are actually working through the stages that you might hear about in advance of something negative happening. To me, grief is, I talk about this a lot in my blogs, that, that grief really is the price of love. So when we love and when we love deeply, we are then going to grieve deeply. And so I, you know, just be thinking about that and, and consciously or unconsciously, just be thinking love replaced grief with love, because that's what it really is. Grief is showing us that we've loved someone, that we've loved perhaps our life, that um, we love the, the people in our lives or the circumstances, whatever it is, you've attached meaning and you've attached love. And that is why people grieve. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the wonderful women who have agreed to join me today. Um, and it's in no particular order other than uh, Three of us have names beginning with A. So Amanda is in Orlando, um, Florida. 
And um, she has three degrees from the University of Central Florida, who had a terrible football game this last weekend. So just don't know that. <laughs> um, but she got her bachelor's, master's, and her doctorate in healthcare administration and health leadership from the University of Central Florida, which is, of course, where I went to school. So that's why I'm talking about it. Um, and she is currently an assistant professor at Advent Health University. Um, for those of us who still call it Florida Hospital, it was Florida Hospital, and now it became Advent Health University. Amanda has two boys. Um, she has a son in college, which obviously she doesn't look old enough to have a son in college, and also a um, high schooler. And in 2018, Amanda was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. Um, and earlier, before we got started, we were talking a little bit about the blog that Amanda wrote for survivingbreastcancer.org. And so I'm not going to steal any of that thunder. Please go read it. It was really amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the reasons that I asked Amanda to talk today is not just because, uh, she is living with stage four metastatic breast cancer, but also because she lost her husband in 2016. Oh. And so she has the experience of parenting and walking through the grieving process with her boys after her husband passed away and now also living with a terminal diagnosis and also walking her sons through that as well. So she had, she brings that um, rich experiences to the panel today. Next, I will turn to Ginny. So each of them are going to share a little bit more about their story. I'm just giving you an, an overview here. Ginny has the um, experience of inflammatory breast cancer, which a lot of people don't know a whole lot about, and she's going to educate us about that as well. Um, but she is the executive director of the Inflammatory Breast Cancer Research Foundation, which if you guys don't know about this group, it is amazing. I, for inflammatory, B for breast cancer, I'm sorry, B for breast, C for cancer, research.org. So ibcresearch.org. Definitely check out their website. Um, Ginny has a list of publications and involvement with so many different things. Again, I'm not going to steal her thunder. She has been in the advocacy space for more than 20 years and has oh. a wealth of information to bring to everyone and one of the reasons that I asked her to, to speak on the panel today is that I saw a beautiful picture on Facebook where she was holding her grandchild who was born at a difficult time in her diagnosis. And she was able to talk about how she wasn't sure that she was going to get to see that granddaughter grow up. So she's going to talk about what it's like to be dealing with a serious illness and also being a grandparent at the same time. So thank you, Jenny, uh, for joining us today. And then we have Anne. Anne has is going to be 50. So we definitely should mark our calendars for her birthday and uh, celebrate that with her. Um, but she has been living with cancer since 2009 and uh, had DCIS at, um, in early in 2009 and then diagnosed metastatic in 2016. Anne has lobular cancer, which is a whole other um, animal, mm -hmm. and has learned how to adjust her life to 
her experiences with breast cancer. So she was a partner in a public relations agency. And in early February of this year, she went on long-term disability. And so I'm sure she can talk about the difference going from a career to not having a career in the middle of dealing with a terminal illness. But one of the reasons that I asked Anne to join us is not just because she's an amazing writer, and I hope she'll do some blogging for, for Laura about Lobular and about her experiences. See, twisting your arm a little bit. I'll keep doing that too. Um, but Anne has teenage girls um, who are twins and are 16. Um, and so she will talk about this experience as it relates to um, talking with her teenage girls. And so I'll be moderating today. Thank you, Anne, for joining us. Need to remember to say that. Um, I'll be moderating today, but I'll also be talking about the experiences of living with metastatic cancer and having young children. When I was diagnosed stage four de novo in 2017, my boys were one and three. And so the process and the experience of talking with kiddos who are younger uh, versus kiddos that might explain or might understand it in a different way. That's part of what we want to talk about today. This process of living with this anticipatory grief, our families living with this anticipatory grief of um, those of us having a serious illness, but then also expressing that and uh, talking with the children of various ages. But what does that look like? Um, so I'm going to turn to Amanda first. And um, just ask you to introduce yourself, give a brief outline of your cancer diagnosis, where you're at currently, fill in any blanks that I, I left out with my brief introduction. Yes. Well, thank you, Abigail and Laura. Um, thank you for having me this evening. Um, as Abigail mentioned, I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in 2018. So I'm almost at the two-year mark. Um, and I was also diagnosed de novo, which means that I did not have an earlier stage diagnosis. Um, I remember the day of diagnosis well, um, it was December 18th and, um, I got my biopsies back. They took four biopsies, um, and all four from my breast and lymph nodes came back positive for malignancy. And so naturally you think, okay, we're going to have, you know, chemo and, I'm going to lose my hair and, and this is, this is the road ahead. But the very next day um, I went for a PET scan and then found myself in the oncologist's office that afternoon. And he said it's stage four um, and it had spread to multiple bones. In fact, I think I counted at one point and it was over 20 different bones in my body. Um, and it's, it's like you're hit with awful news and then it becomes even more awful um, because I didn't even think that I was going to be um, walking this journey. I was 38 at the time of diagnosis. I'm 40 now. And um, it's, it's been a journey. It's been a journey and I'm an active treatment. I see my oncologist monthly. Um, I take uh, two different pills every day. Um, for those that are familiar with Ibrant and Letrozole, um, that's my current first line of treatment. And I also have um, Zometa bone infusions to build and strengthen my bones. Um, and so I've had scans, of course, every three to four months. And 
had a period of, of being stable and the last set of scans showed some progression. And so we're taking a watch and see approach to see what happens in the next couple months. And um, I might be changing treatment lines. So it's, um, it's, it's a tough journey and all of you know that well. Um, but I'm at the same time thankful to be here and to be here with my boys um, each day is truly a gift. And so Amanda, how did you share your diagnosis with your boys? And if I can make this a compound question, um, what did you do differently than you might have in terms of talking with your boys, given the fact that they've lost their dad? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I remember telling them and I thought you know, we play out these scenarios in our mind. If it's this, then I'll say these things. If it's not, then it'll go this way. And I remember thinking through telling them, there was never a question about what to tell them. They were 12 and 17 at the time of my diagnosis. And, um, you know, we had walked through, continue to walk through so much grief. And I've learned that honesty is really the best policy. Um, and sometimes I have to temper that with things that they're able to process. Um, there's a difference between being honest and being brutally honest. And so I find just um, being honest and, and sprinkling in, you know, some things to, to have gratitude over. Um, and that's hard, right? That's, that's so hard. Um, when we had just walked through two years prior losing my husband and their dad, and that is, that's forever kind of threaded through our story. Um, and that's been the hardest thing. Um, and then I remember my older son saying, when I told him, um, what I was, what the you know doctor was telling me, he said, mom, I don't know what could be harder than what we've already walked through. And so it was as if it was as if my boys knew we know how to do this. We do, but we don't, but we know how to do hard. I mean, that had been so much of our journey previously. And so we just continued to pull up our bootstraps. Um, I remember having the conversation with them and I actually had it separately. Um, and this was something that just came to me um, in the moment, but two boys, five years apart, um, very different levels of processing. And in my mind, I thought I would sit down with both of them together, but the way that it worked um, was as it should be. I had a separate conversation with each of them and I think that was for the better. So their questions were, very different um, as we were processing. And my youngest was really more concerned about, can I catch it? Are you contagious? Um, what is this gonna look like you know, moving forward? And my oldest who was really sitting in some of the deep, deep parts of grief um, really started connecting the dots that okay, our dad is not here and what does our life look like if our mom is not here. And so we've had all of those hard conversations and um, oh, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But at the same time, I don't know how to do it other than show up and be honest about it. Thank you, Amanda. Do you think that um, 
the conversations would have been different if they were different ages. Yeah, I do. I think, you know, younger kids uh, process differently. The things that they are concerned about might be very different and older kids are able to cognitively connect dots and think ahead. And um, I realized early on, if I don't tell them, if I don't answer them, honestly, they're going to Google it. You know, they're smart. Kids are smart these days. And so I'd rather them hear things from me and hear, hear it honestly as they're able to process those things instead of just pretending or sugarcoating something. Um, and I do think their ages, again, they were 12 and 17 at the time. Um, now they're 14 and 19. I do think their ages allowed for discussion, harder discussion, but in my mind, important discussion that I probably would not have been able to have if they were younger. All right, Jenny, can we uh, come over to you now um, and introduce yourself and, uh, Same second question. How did you share your diagnosis with your children, grandchildren? Well, you gave me a very good um, introduction already, Abigail. Uh, Worked very hard for those extra initials. (laughs) 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 Because when I was diagnosed, I was a licensed practical nurse. I had uh, planned to go back and be a nurse midwife. I was working, uh, trying to save up money and have my daughter graduate from high school so that I could go back and, and get my master's and then be a nurse midwife. And then cancer derailed those plans. Um, I was just 40 years old, no family history of cancer of any kind. So I was really blindsided um, when I started having what I thought were just perimenopausal symptoms. You know, I was a nurse. I, I thought I knew women's health issues fairly well. So when I had redness and pain and swelling of my breast, I thought, ah, no point in going to the doctor. They're going to tell me you're 40 years old, you're perimenopausal, you're overreacting. So I didn't go. My husband saw me step out of the shower one morning and said, your breasts look sick. Have you been to the doctor? And I said, no, this is what they're going to tell me. And it's not typical for him to say go to the doctor, but he did. He said, you really need to get that checked. So I did, was sent for the you know classic mammogram. My family practice doctor is a good friend who said, I don't think this is anything serious. And when I had the mammogram, um, I said something to the technician, and she said, oh, it does look a little funny. She said, wait, and we'll have the doctor read it. And then she came back in a few minutes, and she said, you can go home. It's fine. They didn't see anything. And I said, well, you saw my breast. It doesn't look right. And you have to know that 26 years ago, I was a good, quiet pastor's wife. I didn't make waves. Cancer changed that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you want to see, do you want to talk to the radiologist? It took every ounce of courage I had to say, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And this little man, I'm almost six feet tall. I used, oh. I've lost some height. But this little man came out and just very cocky said, what's the problem? And I said, well, you should see my breast. It doesn't look right. And he said, told you, it's fine. Stop whining. Go home. He said, you're a nurse, right? And I said, yes, because I used to work in that hospital. And he said, hypochondriac nurse, go home, stop whining. 
So I went home <laughs> and uh, my family doctor called and he said, you know, your mammogram came, came back okay. It's probably a cyst that's blocking fluid. Those are common in women in their 40s. So of course I drag out my medical books and look and sure enough, it does say that that's something fairly common in women in that age range. So I don't want to be the hypochondriac nurse. <laughs> so I just put up it and it just got worse and worse and back to the doctor's office and they tell me no caffeine, no, you know, take ibuprofen, which I was already taking for arthritis. But it took almost five months before I finally got sent to a surgeon who immediately, while he didn't say anything right then, he did a biopsy in the office and I got the results the next day. And he told me, you know, it's not good when the um, surgeon sits down across from you and takes your hand. (laughs) And I was expecting to be told I needed gallbladder surgery as well. And he said, well, I hoped we got to that at some point in time, that I had this very aggressive breast cancer on a scale of one to 10. This was not what you want. And in my usual glass half full kind of way, I said, well, I didn't know I wanted any. And I expected him to chuckle. His expression didn't change. And he said, it's very serious. He said, they're waiting for you down in the oncology suite to start chemotherapy. I hadn't taken my husband with me. I didn't expect to be told I had cancer. This was a Friday about lunchtime. But we went down and met the oncologist, uh, told them that I could not start chemotherapy right then. I had clients waiting at my mental health clinic office for the afternoon. I was also scheduled to take care of my grand, three-month-old granddaughter over lunch break while her, so her mother could go to the doctor's office. And I said, I just can't do that today. <laughs> I don't have time. And I said, besides, I can't call my husband and say, come pick me up. I've just had chemotherapy because I can't drive. So I said, I'll come back on Monday. Let me tell my family what's going on, make arrangements at work, and I will be here on Monday. So they made an appointment for one o'clock on Monday for me to start chemo. And I promptly went back to work (laughs) and didn't tell a soul what was going on. My daughter brought the baby in, my granddaughter. As I said, was three months old that day. My daughter was still having some postpartum issues and having been a labor and delivery nurse, I wanted that taken care of. So I'd made arrangements for her to go someplace to see a, a doctor I trusted. And probably having that hour with my granddaughter was the best therapy I could have because till my daughter came back and I vowed I was not going to tell her anything until we had a chance to really sit down appropriately and talk. Um, but I had myself together when she came back and I just casually said, why don't you and, and your husband come out for, for uh, dinner this evening? I said, or maybe just a, that may, may be better not offer dinner. Um, and she later said she should have known something was weird, <laughs> but um, that's, and I worked the rest of the afternoon and it wasn't until I got ready to leave work that I uh, told my boss, the psychiatrist I worked with, what was going on and that I needed Monday afternoon off. And I'm one of these crazy people that worked throughout my treatment. But telling my daughter was tough. Here she was, a senior in high school, had chosen to get married, had a brand new baby. Um, And, you know, how do you tell your only child who's 17 that 
you probably won't see her child make it to a year because I was told I had 18 months to live. It's hard enough to get home and tell my husband that as we were getting ready that year to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And so it was, at least I had a chance to tell him first. Um, I had planned this scenario in my brain on my drive home from work. It took me 30 minutes to get home. And of course I walk in the door and it's pouring rain and I just say, I'm going to die. <laughs> and my husband, I should say, is also a pastor, recently retired. Um, so there were many times I watched him switch into pastor mode to deal with things. <laughs> you know, as awful as it was the year before that to deal with a teenage daughter getting pregnant and wanting to get married and all of the challenges of that. Through that experience, I learned that I can't control what happens to me. I can only control how I respond. And that prepared me to be able to deal with the cancer, I think, because I realized at first it was, you know, why did this happen? But within a few hours, I was to, why not? You know, what makes me special that it wouldn't be me? And I have to decide how I'm going to handle this. And it's not going to go away. But, you know, it's up to me. So I think... That set the tone for what I did then for the rest of, of my experience with my cancer. Um, my granddaughter uh, was just an amazing help to me going through my treatment. For me, you know, the fact that I was going to be a nurse midwife, I love babies. I wanted to sit and just rock her. That was probably better for me than the chemotherapy, I think. It was therapy. Um, she didn't care that I was bald and you know, dark circles under my eyes because I did chemotherapy before surgery. Um, I'm not stage four. I always joke and say I'm stage three and three, or three C, which is three and three quarters. <laughs> We're always on the edge of waiting for that, that other shoe to drop. And I have had four times I've been told I was metastatic, but later came back after biopsies that it was not. They were all treatment related issues. Uh, but I certainly have lost so many friends um, to inflammatory breast cancer since a third of us are metastatic at diagnosis and another third become metastatic during the course of their disease. So it's a, a place that, that we, we have experience whether we want to be there or not. Um, so I've, I feel like I've dealt with it vicariously. I've done a lot of that um, anticipatory grief and a lot of grieving for those that I care deeply about that I've met in 21 years of working with other patients. But I think um, you were talking about the picture I posted of my great holding my, I have one with me and my granddaughter. And then the, my recent blog post, I have a picture of me with my granddaughter uh, at just about or five months old. And then I posted a picture of myself with her first child. And to be able to have made that full circle um, to see that grow up, get married, and have her own child is just incredible, something I never expected to have. Thank you for sharing that, Jenny. How, how did your daughter respond when you told her? I don't think at the time she realized how serious it was. And admittedly, I probably downplayed it a little for her benefit. 
but I think there were some real benefits in the fact that she didn't see me 24 hours a day because she was so wrapped up in trying to finish school, take care of a baby, newly married, and living in her own house. So she wasn't at home with me all the time. So I could kind of control the times we were together and she would see me probably at, at my better times, or at least I would try to make it that way. It wasn't about a year and a half later um, when we were all surprised that I was still alive that I think it really hit her how serious it had been and how close she came to, to not having her mom. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Next, we turn to Anne. Anne, how did you share your diagnosis with your daughters? Yeah, thank you. Um, I don't have all those fun little letters after my name, but I can definitely relate to everybody else's stories. Certain parts and pieces, I think, kind of puts it all together. Um, so in 2009, I was 38. We were trying to get pregnant again. We had some eggs on ice, as we called it. And um, so I was taking estrogen, I had the estrogen patches and I had just this awful um, lump in my breast. And I went to the doctor right before Christmas and he said, no, you know, you have no family history. You're way too young. You just have dense breast tissue. So I did all the caffeine, you know, you take all that away and everything. And, and by February, I was diagnosed with um, stage three cancer and it was DCIS on my right side. It had gotten into some of the lymph nodes, but um, you know, I was told, and I remember distinctly because I've had the same oncologist for 11, 12 years now, um, this won't kill you. Like we, we can get you through this. It's going to be the worst year of your life, but we can get you through this. And, and my girls at the time had just turned five. Um, they, I realized when we finally sat them down to tell them that they clearly didn't know, um, the different parts of your body because they told everybody that I had hip cancer, um, which had a lot of people questioning, you know, what, who has hip cancer at 39. Um, so we took care, we figured all that out and we dealt with that. Um, I also did the whole neoadjuvant chemo. So we had to tell them pretty early that mom was going to lose their hair and, um, and they were good. I think Amanda, you hit on it earlier. They take their cues from their parents. And so we tried to, you know, again, at that age, they hadn't even started kindergarten we tried to set the tone that we're going to work hard. Everybody has to do their part. That means washing your hands. That means, you know, not bringing in germs, blowing your nose and throwing away the Kleenex. Some of the things that have come in handy with COVID, um, you know, we started really drilling that in, in kindergarten as they were, you know, processing all of this. They did a lot of, it wasn't like a therapy baby, but um, they would sit on our fireplace and reenact Calvin and Hobbes, like the funny facial expressions. Um, they were learning how to read a little bit. And so that was a big part of how I spent my days after chemo and recovery and everything. And, and you know, they were troopers during all of it. And, and I'm lucky that my husband was great. Um, he hadn't been working at the time, so he was there to, to help. I also worked through all the diagnosis both times. Um, you know, we thought that everything was going really great. Um, I made it past the five years on tamoxifen, hated that, um, but felt like, you know, we'd done everything right. I was exercising, eating right, um, trying to do everything they tell you to do. And then I went in in February of 2016 and I was training for a marathon and I couldn't breathe. 
And I thought it was really weird, but I did my mammogram. I did my chest x-rays. They were all clean. And I talked to my oncologist. She's like, you're great. You're fine. I'm like, I don't think I am. But, you know, she's like, it's, you know, just that time of year sent me home. And finally, I just had gotten blown off enough that I called my oncologist's office. I'm like, I'm not going to hang up the phone until somebody agrees to see my breast. I'm pretty sure there's something going on. And um, he got me in for ultrasounds and the radio radiologist that day is like, if you can't see the oncologist in the next 48 hours, call me back. Um, so I knew right then it was serious. Um, I went in, saw the oncologist, did the, um, the biopsy and everything. It turned out that it was lobular. Unfortunately, she called back and delivered the news while one of my daughters was in the car and my husband was out of town. So that is not the right way to tell your children. Um, she shouldn't have heard it that way. And fortunately, you know, everybody's kids are different. It was the one who was probably more grounded than the other one. Um, so Rose did a great job of handling it. And we were on our way to buy pet food. And she's like, let's just go get the rabbit food, mom. And then we'll get back in the car and then we'll cry. It's like, okay, <laughs> good idea. So we, we persevered, we got the rabbit food, we got in the car and, um, and then we let loose and we cried and screamed. And I think the biggest difference, like from my oncologist perspective was the first time I was diagnosed, he made it very clear that I could survive it if I could, you know, make it through the chemo and everything. And as he started describing what he saw in the scans and where it was in the bones, and I had a pleural effusion and a pericardial effusion, um, and it didn't hit me that it was stage four for a long time. And then when he finally said it, then there was a whole string of the F word. Um, and he was patting my leg the whole time. Somebody mentioned that earlier that, you know, when your oncologist is offering you that physical, I'm like, don't freaking touch me. Like, <laughs> you know? I've just had to change treatment this year. And I, ha I know, I think Amanda touched on it. You have to be very honest and very straightforward because if I say it wrong, they're going to go upstairs and Google it. And God only knows it could be worse, whatever they find up there. Mm -hmm. So I do try and make sure and make a conscious effort that we use the right language. We don't shortcut it. Um, that, you know, very clear that they're going to go look it up themselves and they're going to Google what other people are saying about it and where it's all, what else can happen. So, um, you know, I think that that's, that's a big part of it. Camp Kesem has been huge for them. I was diagnosed in May and they were fortunate enough to go in August of that year to Camp Kesem. And um, that was just a phenomenal experience for them as well, just to see other teenagers at the time who are a few years ahead of them and to be able to have those relationships has been really critical for part of their, their healing process and their, how they walk through all this journey. Has, has your husband had caregiver support through this process of your experience with cancer? Well, that's a great question. And that's a tough one. Um, he has, we went on the inheritance of hope, another amazing program. Um, and he did have some good discussions there. I can't say that they've been sustained um, through our church and some of the men there. I think that that's probably where he gets the most of his support um, I'm not sure he's ever going to be, you know, very extremely talkative about it. Um, but he's also gone through cancer himself. He had testicular cancer in between my two diagnoses. Um, so I think he understands it a little bit more than he did the first time for sure. And, and what it means to hear those dreadful words if you have cancer. Um, so 
you know, I think that that's, that's part of his journey as well. I think a, a refrain that I hear from a lot of people is just that as much support as there is for those of us who are going through it, that oftentimes there isn't as much support for our support system. Um, and a couple of the organizations that Anne uh, mentioned, Inheritance of Hope, um, is a wonderful organization that sends cancer patients and their families on vacation. And then they have people in the community who really know what they're going through, who come alongside them as mentors. Um, so that's a wonderful um, organization. There's also another one called Little Pink Houses of Hope. Um, so just wanted to make sure everybody's aware of those things. Um, Camp Kasem is, is a wonderful resource for um, children who are old enough. But as I found out with young kids, they have to be six before they can go. Um, so it is important if you're looking for um, resources for your caregivers or for your support system that, that you think about those things. Um, and I'll just give a brief mm -hmm. um, synopsis of my diagnosis and how we told our kiddos. Um, so in 2017, I was tandem breastfeeding my boys. They were one in three at the time. And I felt a lump and went to my lactation consultant, my primary care physician. I thought it was related to breastfeeding, um, but it wasn't. I do have a family history. My mother's a, at the time, was a 16-year cancer survivor. And through the process of my diagnosis, we did find out that there was a germline mutation in our family, somewhat like BRCA, called ATM, like you get money from the ATM. <laughs> and um, I have the distinction of having both ductal carcinoma and um, lobular. So basically, your ductal carcinoma forms those uh, lumps that you feel. Lobular, it looks a little bit like lace. And so this is what I had. I had a nice big lump that I felt, and then it was um, infiltrating deeper into the tissue like lace. It's actually kind of pretty on um, on a... Uh, pictures if you didn't think about how deadly it is. So for about two months, we thought I was stage two. I went through a lumpectomy, found out that I needed chemo. After my first chemo appointment, I got a call from my medical oncologist where he said that something was off with my blood work. And because I was so completely out of it and had no idea what was going on, I'm like, okay, sure, let's go get a bone scan. Um, and it turned out that I had been stage four from the beginning and that limp that I had uh, not been complaining about for several months was a five centimeter tumor in the middle of my right femur. So I was in surgery within a week to have titanium rods put inside both femurs. And so within a matter of days, our life, uh, lives were completely turned upside down, just like Anne, my medical oncologist went from this is a blip. You're going to get through this. This is not going to kill you to at the next appointment. This is something that will kill you. And I appreciated how he, you know, drew that distinction between what it was before and, and stage four, because it was in my face and it wasn't a, um, there was no question uh, what it was. And I think that one thing that is hard for a lot of people is just that doctors often don't use really strong, clear, direct language. I think some of that is because they're trying to not scare the crap out of you. 
But then sometimes I think that can backfire. And I think that that is a recurrent theme as you're hearing from everybody to use the right language um, when you're talking to children um, to be honest and not say something that isn't true in the moment because it might fulfill a need in the moment, but you're going to then pay for it afterwards. So with my kids, we have not shared a whole lot of detailed information with them because they were one and three when I was diagnosed and now they're five and seven. And so they know that mom is sick. Um, they know that mom goes to the doctor. Um, when my when I was diagnosed, my three-year-old, who is now seven, his biggest concern was that the doctors were going to fix my run. So he would always ask when I came back from a doctor's appointment, is your run fixed yet, mommy? Because I went from being very active with my very active little boys to, um, well, I was in a wheelchair because I wasn't allowed to walk once they found out that my femur was about to shatter. And after surgery, I used a walker and then I used a cane because um, I had to learn my muscles and my tendons and my ligaments had to get used to the um, the change uh, that they were ripped apart so that they could put a drill down the middle of my bone. So that process meant that we had to do things very differently. And for me, I had to go from being an extremely active mom of young kids to being much more sedentary. Um, but like everybody's talked about, our kids really do respond to how we're handling things and how we set things up. And so that's really just the way that we've done it is we can't say the word terminal to my kids. They're too young. Even cancer is somewhat of a hard um, word because there are so many connotations to that. And so we're, we're very careful with the language that we, we use, but we talk about the importance, like Anne said, about um, what they can do, right? The washing their hands and being careful with their germs and, you know, that there are just some times where they can't get up next to mommy, even though, of course, that's the only thing that they want to do. Um, so that conversation has been very different with, with little guys, but I, I just noticed too, that if anybody is sick or if any of their friends cry, or if any of their friends fall down, they're, they're there right away. I feel like it's, it's taught them to be a lot more empathetic. They're a lot more, they ask more questions about that sort of thing. Abigail, Amanda, Jeannie, Anne, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and opening up about how you have these very difficult and challenging conversations with your children, but these are conversations we must have. I love the key takeaways about honesty, meeting your children where they're at, so depending on their ages, understanding their developmental phases and their cognitive ability to understand where we are in our diagnosis. I love that this is a continuation of conversation. This isn't a one and done scenario. It evolves and we continue to have an open dialogue between our our loved ones, our families and our children. I think this is such great takeaways. And I really appreciate you giving our listeners an opportunity to learn and hear from you guys who are going through this. Now that we know how to relay the information to our children, next week, I want to follow up with all of you and ask the, the burning question. So after you told your children... What were their reactions? What were some of the challenging questions that they asked? Or were there any questions that they asked that surprised you? So we'll dive into some of those topics next week. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, 
You can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences, and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.